started a new Sunday school series. We are watching some of the uh, preaching sermons from 2023 Ligonier Conference. Um, I've gone to those in the past and they've always been really encouraging. And the theme this year is standing firm. So we'll be watching a few of these men preach, including Steve Lawson. And uh, we, we've watched him and some of his videos before. Great man of God, an expositor of the word of God. So we'll be seeing that. But this morning, Stephen Nichols preached on standing firm because Jesus promised, I will build my church. And no matter what kind of difficulties came along throughout church history, whether it be government against Christianity, persecution, even martyrdom, he continued to build his church even to today. And he gave a very, I think, powerful illustration, and I'd like to begin my sermon with that illustration this morning. He said that post-World War II China cracked down on Christianity in any form. They stopped meeting in churches. They made it illegal to be a Christian, and they burned all of the Bibles. Well, the Christians who still existed remembered that the missionaries from a generation ago were buried with their Bibles, and they exhumed the bodies of those missionaries so that they could get to the Bibles. And then they began to copy the Bible and would pass it around from Christian to Christian. That is the power of the word of God. I want to say that that is exactly how Jesus, who said, I will build my church, that's exactly how he builds his church, is through the word of God. Jesus himself prayed, Father, sanctify them, make them holy, grow them in the Lord. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. I bring that up this morning because I want to say that here at Grace Bible Church, we we do preach what we call expository sermons. What is an expository sermon? Well, let me read it right from our webpage. At Grace Bible Church, we are continually devoting ourselves to the in-depth study of the Bible through the expository teaching of God's Word. And let let me read for you what expository is before we go any further. Expository teaching is expounding the true meaning of a passage of Scripture. It is accomplished through studying the text in its original language its context, related scriptures, and historical background. It extracts God's intended meaning and truths, which must be the authority for our beliefs and our behavior. So in a nutshell, that's what expository preaching means. Also, it's preaching verse by verse. So let me read that second part again. Through the expository teaching of God's word, we are being equipped to exalt the Lord, edify believers, and evangelize the world. That is what we do here. 
I want to say that because of our first pastor here at Grace Bible Church, John Ward, who was an expositor, it got a hold of my life and touched me. And I ended up wanting to go to Bible college, but not until he left because he taught on such a good level that there was no need to go to Bible college until he left. And as I went to Bible college, I, I said, that, that is it. That is the model, expository preaching. And that is what I really went back to Bible college for. I do remember when I came here, uh, this was the church that I went to, uh, then became a pastor, was all over the country for a little bit, Pennsylvania, uh, was in Texas. Um, then I had an opportunity to candidate here, be like coming home. When I was candidating, I, I, I know myself my, by now, by now, it took a while, but I know myself and I know what needs to be done in the church. And so when I candidated, I said, in all kindness, if you're looking for a program guy to come in and do the programs, I said, I'm not your guy. Not that I'm not going to help with programs. Not that I'm not going to roll up my sleeves. But if you're looking for a guy who's going to dedicate himself to study the word and preach the word, I might be your guy. Well, it was like a hand and a glove because that's exactly what a Bible church should want. And that's exactly what you all do want. So I'm just saying that because some may visit and not understand why we go so in-depth in the Bible, why we do Bible study. Well, A, it's a Bible church, and B, how else would I get to the meaning of Scripture without my own Bible study? And then to pass that Bible study on as we preach the sermon. I say that as we begin our fifth sermon on David, a man after God's own heart. And David was a man after God's own heart and loved the word of God. Psalm 119, virtually every verse in Psalm 119, and there are well over a hundred, virtually every verse has a synonym for the word of God. He says, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And it's because he meditated on God's word that he had an intimate knowledge of God. And because he had an intimate knowledge of God, he became a man who had a heart after God's own heart. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 139. It's our third week that we're going through this. A lot there, a lot to say. So this, if we were to look at our series and how the series is progressing. We started on Father's Day, David, a man after God's own heart, and we defined what that was. We let Scripture define what that was. It's, it's one who gives himself wholeheartedly to God, to his word, and to God's will. It's one who loves what God loves and hates, hates what God hates. And we will see that in this passage this morning, we talked about the elephant in the room was how can he be a man after God's own heart when he grievously sinned, not only in adultery, but murder? How could he still be a man after God's own heart? And what a, what a precious truth is because David had heartfelt and sincere and genuine repentance. 
So that gives us hope, does it not? Wherever you're asking and looking at your life and saying where you are spiritually, you can be a person after God's own heart. And then we tackled Psalm 139. Because in Psalm 139, we find out one of the reasons why David is a man after God's own heart. Because he knew God intimately. He knew God. He knew God's nature. He knew God's attributes. And we talked about God's attributes from the book of Psalms. But we specifically looked at God's attributes in Psalm 139. Now, some of the attributes that we could find in the book of Psalms is that he was creator, eternal, sovereign, holy, righteous, God of love, faithfulness, mercy, and compassion and goodness. All of those together, not just a God of love, which you hear today from even many pulpits. But if you're an expositor, If you study the word and let the word tell you who God is, you're going to get a different viewpoint than from what just you can conjure yourself. Psalm 139, we've talked about it. Verses 1 through 6, David knew God's omniscience. God knows everything all the time. And he specifically knew David and David's life when David was lie down and when David got up and you see this personal relationship that David has with God because he knew of God's omniscience he talked about his omnipresence God is everywhere present fully not just a part here and then a part in Takamatsu and a part over here he is fully here in his presence as he is fully there and that is good and bad It's good because as believers, we know he's always there and watching over us. For unbelievers, that's not so good. Because whatever they do, whatever wrong and sin they do, he's always there and watching them. And then last week we tackled his omnipotence. God can do all things. God can do all things. And I'll say it again. Somebody's going to say, yes, but can can God create a rock that's so big that even he can't lift? And I'll just respond with what Augustine said. Hell is reserved for people who ask questions like that. He will not do any. He he has his nature, his divine nature, and it will never change. He says, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so that is his nature. And so he will do all things in accordance with who he is, his nature. And, of course, David talked about the fact that he was formed in his mother's womb, the power that we see. But it applies to all things in life, that God is so omnipotent and sovereign that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. What a, what a hope and a joy that is. And then we went to verses 17 and 18. And I will ask you to look there. And this is all part of my introduction. I think this is part and parcel of an expositor. I remember years ago when I was looking for another church, uh, there was a particular church in Montana uh, that um, had public hunting all around it. My wife was so scared. (laughs) She thought for sure I was going to take it. And I may have if it would have been God's will. But I asked them, how long does a preacher get to preach? Oh, they said, oh, about 20 minutes. 
And I thought, I can't even get done with my introduction in 20 minutes. And I said, well, what does the pastor do? And they said, well, he, fell, <laughs> he fellowships with the men and goes hunting and fishing with them. And sometimes on dark days, the flesh is kicking me a little bit, okay? I'll be honest. I'll, but I know deep down in my heart that would have never, ever worked because that's not what I was there to do. And we come to verses 17 and 18 of Psalm 139, and this is a, a point that I didn't quite get to cover last week. Another thing about expositors is we don't cover it last week. We're going to cover it this week, which probably also means I'm going to be covering next week what I didn't cover today. But I make no apologies, beloved. I make no apologies. When you go to a smorgasbord or you go to a place where there's dining and you can keep eating and eating and eating, you don't just get a little bowl of soup and a cracker and then go home. And I feel as if that's the way churches ought to be today. We ought to be that we're giving them everything, food, maybe even more food than they can digest initially because we want to see us all grow in Christ. And that's what David did. He meditated on the word of God. So in Psalm 139, verses 17 and 18, he says, How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. The vast is the sum of them. How vast they are. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God. And he thought upon God, and he thought upon God's thoughts, and God's ways, and God's word. And as a result, he came to know God intimately. Okay, a point. I'm getting to my point. The point is that we will never grow significantly in our, in our walk with the Lord. We will never get to know God intimately if we don't study the word, if we don't meditate on the word, if we don't even come to church and hear the word. You will not grow. You will be stifled. Even your fervor, your fervor on fire for the Lord will dwindle if you're not under a steady diet of the word of God and under his word and meditating upon it. David wrote in Psalm 27, one thing I have asked from the Lord, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate, to meditate in his temple, meditating, thinking on God. He wrote about God's works. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. And so he's meditating on God. He's meditating on what God has done. And then in Psalm 119, verse 97, he writes, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. When I first read that, I did struggle with that. Why, why not say, oh, how I love you, Lord? Because we are to love the Lord. Well, I then learned that by loving his word is equivalent to loving him. And let me say it another way. By loving him, you will come to love his word. And so this is how David became a man after God's own heart and would write things like this. Whom have I in heaven but you and besides you? 
I desire nothing on earth. Well, we are in this fantastic psalm, Psalm 139. And, and so far, everything I've been describing has been good, pretty much upbeat, even David's repentance. But now we're going to take a little bit of a turn. We are now going to do the section that's called an imprecatory psalm. There are imprecatory psalms. It means that the prayer is a call to God to bring judgment on sin and sinners. I will try to explain that, but then we will go through the passage. But this is still part of David's heartfelt knowledge of God because of this. Just like you gain an intimate relationship with God by meditating on his word and his attributes, you also understand the sinfulness of man, how unlike God we are by meditating on who God is from the word of God. That is how this section, verses 19 through 22, come about. With that, let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we come before you and we thank you for your word. Father, I ask, I truly ask that it's your Holy Spirit who is doing the enabling, both the enabling to speak your word after studying your word so that we can hear your word and obey your word. Would you, Father, open up to us even the meaning of these imprecatory psalms, but may it boil down to that if we love you, we will hate sin. Father, that is a message that needs to be preached. And we'll thank you, Father, and ask your aid through the Holy Spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's look then at Psalm 139, beginning with verse 19. Listen to it. Listen to the harshness of it, and I will explain it then. Verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed. For they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred, or some versions say with perfect hatred. They have become my enemies. But then, to finish out this psalm, his heart goes back to this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Well, let's go back to this first part, this first part where David has a hatred for sin that is against God. As I said, it's called the imprecatory Psalms. If you go through the book of Psalms, you take a course on the book of Psalms in a Bible college, you will see the different kind of Psalms that there are, Messianic, about Christ and Messiah. There are Hallel Psalms that they would sing as they were going to the feasts, um, Psalms of repentance, but there were also these that are imprecatory Psalms. They are prayers that call for God's judgment upon 
God's enemies. And they're also prayers that call for judgment upon David's enemies because he is seeking the will of God. Now, I want to give a few more examples I, I, so that you know what it is when you read across them. And you can turn with me if you want, or I can just read it. But in Psalm 37:20, it says this, But the wicked will perish, and the enemies of the Lord, key phrase, enemies of the Lord, will be like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. David's enemies, he writes in Psalm 63, but those who seek my life to destroy it will go into the depths of the earth. They will be delivered over to the power of the sword. They will be a prey for foxes. But the king, speaking of himself, the king will rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him will glory for the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. I have a whole bunch of references down there if you care to study this out further. I'm not going to read all of them, but these are these psalms that David or the psalmist is calling down God's judgment on sin and sinners. How did this happen? Where, why, why does this happen? Why did it happen in the middle of this fantastic psalm where he talks about, God, you formed me in my mother's womb. You knew me before and after, and then all of a sudden slay the wicked. Because when you're contemplating God, and you're contemplating how holy he is, you also understand how unholy we are. When you understand his holiness, you understand our unholiness. When you understand how righteous he is and perfect and pure, and you see sin in the world, you hate that sin. God hates that sin, as we will see. And so, this is a byproduct of a man who is after God's heart. He loves God. He's, he's enamored with all of God's attributes and wants to be as close to God as he can. And you can't help but think, but what about sin, whether in the world or in my own life? Sin is exposed when we study the attributes of God. One writes it this way. David wrote under the inspiration of God regarding the nature of evil. He was intoxicated with God's character and name and was concerned with the manifestation of God's righteousness and holiness on earth. Since evil contrasts in every way with God's nature and plan, David prayed for divine retribution by which God's order would be reestablished and God's people would be assured of his love. And so we see that he is imprecatory in his language because he is concerned for God, God's reputation, God's glory, God's plan, and God's plan for God's people. And it makes sense. Now, we want to think about this what about us? Is this what we should be doing? This imprecatory language? Well, let me explain that in just a second. But one of the first things that when we read this in the Psalms, that it brings across to us is the acknowledgement of sin in the world. Let's never get 
Let's never get too used to sin or too used to what's coming on on the news all the time that we don't see it as sin and see it as bad as sin is. It was C.S. Lewis who wrote this. Against all this, the ferocious parts of the Psalms serve as a reminder that there is in the world such a thing as wickedness and that it is hateful to God. We ought at least understand that. But when we look at our own Christian worldview, I want to say there's a sense in which we don't pray like this. There's a sense in which now being under the New Testament, we are to love our enemies. We are told to love our enemies. We are indeed uh, not to become revolutionaries. One might think, well, maybe what we need is Christian revolutionaries. No, we talked about this on a Wednesday night that when Jesus was arrested and the apostle Peter took out his sword and unskillfully cut off the ear of one of the priest's servants, Jesus said, no, this is not what we do. God's will must be fulfilled, and those who live by the sword will die by the sword, and he healed the servant's ear. We're not called to be revolutionaries. We are rather, as he said in chapter 5, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And what is the purpose of that? Please tell me, right? Well, the purpose of that is that they, your enemies, your persecutors, would see the love of Christ and be drawn to him and come to Christ. That is the ultimate hope. Now, On the other hand, we are at the same time to hate sin. We are to hate sin that is against God. And we are to hate sin in the world. David wrote such things as from Psalm 119, From your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. The book of Proverbs, Solomon wrote this, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, arrogance, and the evil way, and the perverted mouth I hate. And then even in the New Testament, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor evil, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. So, As we talk about sin, we've got to deal with it correctly, biblically, and that's what David, I believe, is doing for us this morning. With that, let us go to the scriptures. Let us go to verse 19, and I'll read it again. Psalm 139, verse 19. So from going from, your thoughts are fantastic to me, God. And when I awake, almost as if I'm afraid to go to sleep because maybe you wouldn't be there or maybe I wouldn't know you as intimately, he says, when I awake, I am still with you. And then all of a sudden, oh, that you would slay the wicked. And I'm thinking here, I don't know, but I guess I'm just thinking of us. So we would be sitting there meditating on God and his holiness. And then it would dawn on us of the sin that's in the world, the sin that's in man, the sin that's even in our own heart. 
and you would begin to deal with it, and he does. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed. This is an understanding of God's righteousness, that God, if he is perfectly righteous, then he cannot fellowship with sin. Now, he is a God of love, praise God, and a God of mercy. So there is hope for the sinner for eternal life if you come to Christ and trust him as your Savior. But there is also, God God does never wink at sin. And that's what we see about with the, the work on the cross. The work on the cross, which is so beautiful, is that every sin, every sin was dealt with and punished by the wrath of God upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And if I trust him that he did that for me, if I trust him and I take him to be my savior, my sacrifice at that moment, I am forgiven of all of those sins of which I am worthy to go to hell, of which God hates, but they are forgiven. It's an amazing, amazing thing. But David isn't saying anything that others in scripture haven't said, even God himself. We could go back to the book of Ezekiel where God says this, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins will die, will be punished. Romans chapter 6 verse 23, For the wages of sin is death. God would not be a Holy God, if he winked at sin, and he did not wink at sin. Revelation chapter 21, talking about those who are not in heaven. The difference between these and those who are in heaven is that those who are in heaven have availed themselves of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. They are just as much a sinner and depraved as the ones who are not getting into heaven. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So David has not said anything that is theologically incorrect. We're just not used to that language, but he has not said it incorrectly. What we find out in the New Testament as well as everywhere else is that everyone has sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all of us are deserving hell. But again, the mercy of God through the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't have to. But there are many who will not go. Many who will shake their fist at God still. He then says, In Psalm 139, depart from me. I don't want to be near you. I don't want any part of it. This is what God expresses. He cannot fellowship with sin. Depart from me. But David's saying it here, therefore men of bloodshed. Now what do we mean by men of bloodshed? And I think we know it. Men of bloodshed are violent murderers. Now this is not talking about self-defense. This is not talking about military. That is in a different category. This is people of their own volition and hearts are evil and cannot sleep unless they devise evil. And they are violent and murderous. And David says, depart from me. 
These men have no regard for life. David just talked about God, the creator in life. Psalm 139, you formed my inward parts. They have no regard for life. We have seen some of the kings go in the Old Testament and they would not only kill the soldiers, but they would kill the women and rip open them open and their unborn child. Men of bloodshed. And David rightfully emotes, slay them, depart from me, men of bloodshed. We come to verse 20. And it's here in verse 20 that I believe that we are going to see a key. The key is, it's not that just David is going around saying, I don't like you, I don't like you, I don't like you, I'm praying against you. David ultimately takes enemies of those who are God's enemies. That's what it says here. For they speak against you wickedly. Yes, they speak against David. And yes, David has applied this to them. But it's mostly because he loves God. of What they're doing to God. They speak against you wickedly and your enemies, your enemies, take your name in vain. And that is exactly how we would do it. We, we have our families. We love our families. I, I think of my mother, who was a loving mother. Uh, she also was a disciplinarian. She would never let anyone say anything bad about me because she would say that was her job. But seriously, she would not. She would stop them. She would stop them from saying anything bad about me because she loved me. And certainly an imperfect young fella, an old fella, but God is perfect. He's divine. He's majestic. David knows his omniscience, his omnipresence, his omnipotence. He knows his attributes. Don't you ever say anything derogatory about my God is his attitude. An attitude which we ought to have. We ought to have. Now, God doesn't need us to defend him, but we ought to defend him just the same. And so we see this is against God's enemies, and then we're going to see that David took them as his enemies. And God will bring his righteous indignation against his enemies. Now, they don't have to be enemies. They could come to Christ. But what I find so interesting is, is you share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with individuals. They hear how they could be forgiven. And all of a sudden, they want nothing to do with the gospel, with God, or with you. And they become ferocious. They become an enemy. They become a persecutor. And you... I, you can't figure out why, except for the sinful nature that resides in all of us. But in Psalm seven eleven, he says, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, that's a key. If, if a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. Now, it may be difficult for us to understand this, but that's because we're not wholly righteous. We're not perfectly righteous. God is. 
But God is also merciful, and I'm going to keep saying this just so that somebody doesn't misquote me in this sermon. He is also merciful. But when you reject him and continue to reject him and continue to shake your fist at him and say, no, I will not come to your son. I will not have a relationship with you. Then what happens is at the end of your life, when you die, you go into eternity saying, well, maybe my good things are good enough to get me over the bad things. Nope. That's it's not even talked about in Scripture. There is no amount of good things, and they aren't really righteous things anyway. Well, I stayed under the speed limit. Yeah, because the state trooper was at the median strip. That's why you stayed under the speed limit. It's the idea that we see here that God must pour his indignation, righteous indignation, upon sinners. We read in Psalm 21, 8 and 9, your hand will find out all your enemies. Because he's omnipresent, because he's omniscient, he knows all things. For David, it was a great thing that God was with him, watching over him, protecting him. And if you're a believer, you can claim that same thing. But for an unbeliever, watch out. You are being watched. You may fool men, but you are not fooling God. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will devour them. Now, before we just conclude, okay, this is just Old Testament teaching, it's not. It's not. We go to the book of Revelation. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes back in his second coming, in chapter 19, that great chapter it says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, the nations that are against God, the nations that are against Israel. And he will rule them with an iron rod. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Did you ever wonder why that terminology is there? Well, when they Tread the wine press. You just keep going over it and over it and over it, and you're getting every absolute drop of that grape so that you can turn it into something to drink. It's the idea that he will carry out every smallest and minutest detail to bring his wrath upon. You know, we really are living in an age of grace right now. That's why sin can be rampant at the moment because it's an age of grace. But there's an age coming when that will be gone. And that's when this wine press of God's fierce wrath continually, every sin, even though Jesus Christ died on the cross for that sin, the enemies of God don't care. And God will deal with sin. But he's also a merciful God, as I've said. Now, what do we mean by sinners? Well, David defines them in these passages. So in verse 19, he calls them the wicked. Those who are deviant from what is righteous. Wickedness is the opposite of righteousness. They are men of bloodshed, violent, murderous people. They speak wickedly against God. People who 
speak against God. And, and, and by saying God doesn't exist, they are speaking against God. They take his name in vain, which really refers to saying things that aren't true about God or living in a way that hurts the reputation of God. They are those who hate God. Haters of God. Can you imagine that? It's hard to imagine that when we love him because he first loved us, it says in Scripture, but there are people who hate God. And verse 21 says, there are those who rise up against God. And whether they know it or not, maybe they think they're atheists, but whether they know it or not, they are rebelling and rejecting God. They are rejecting his mercy as well. They are rejecting his offer of salvation. And God cannot do anything other than bring upon his righteous indignation. Now, something that has been very interesting for me as we've been in the book of Second Kings and also as we're doing this study is the idea of a definition of sin. Probably one of the strongest definitions of sin is in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. I don't think we're going to take the time to read it, but I do have those there in my notes. And what we find out is, guess where Paul gets all of his information? From David, the book of Psalms, where he says, There's none righteous, no, not one, Psalm 14. In fact, I think I will read at least Psalm 14, verses 1 through 5. Psalm 14 says this, a psalm of David. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, meaning unrighteous. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. He's looking. He's looking. Paul just says, there are none who understand God. There are none who seek for God. If you seek for God, it's by the grace of God. They have all turned aside. They're not following the Lord. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. In God's eyes, any righteousness that we have is not good enough. It is not even really Considered good by God, our our righteousness, our righteousness is filthy rags. Christ's righteousness that is given to us the moment we receive him and his mercy is perfect. But God's enemies don't want that. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all the workers of wickedness not know who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great dread, for God is with the righteous generation. And of course, that's where Paul studies his Bible under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, which is really the most biblical and most detailed description of what a sinner is. Now quickly, let's go to verses 21 and 22. Psalm 139. Now that language gets even more tense because he starts to use the word hate. 
He says, verse 21, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Now, I want to talk about this just a little bit. How did David get here? David got here because he is a man after God's own heart. And, and God loves righteousness. But he hates sin. And therefore, David must hate sin. Now, in our day and age, we say we must hate sin and love the sinner. And I get that. I get that. And I would agree with that. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I get it. So God does love as well. But at the same time, we are to hate sin. And then the conundrum comes. It's not as though the sin is walking by itself aside of the person. It's in the heart of the person. And therefore, when God punishes sin, it's in the heart of the unbeliever, and therefore, the sinner must be punished, you, you see? And so there's a conundrum there. But I still do believe that God hates sin, but loves the sinner. But the sin is in the sinner, and when he punishes sin, he punishes the sinner. One writes this, It is true that God is love, but it is not all the truth. That is only one of his attributes, and his love can never be experienced at the expense of any other attribute. Furthermore, the fact that God is love does not mean that he is incapable of hating. And he quotes several scriptures. The one who loves violence, God's soul hates. He hates all evil doers, and he hates Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies. And listen to this, almost as if this shouldn't be in the list, but it is. God hates a man who sows discord among the brethren. Tailbearing, gossip, God hates it. As far as David's hatred goes, one writes this. The strings of David's heart were the cords of the heart of Jesus. David hated, but his hatred was like God's hatred. It proceeded not from evil emotion, but rather from the earnest and thoroughly sincere desire that the purposes of God must stand and that wickedness must perish. Had David not hated, he would have desired the success of evil and the downfall of God himself. It is well to keep these thoughts in mind when we consider the nature of David's hatred. It basically is ultimately, if you're an enemy of God, you were an enemy of David. Now, I have to bring this up. All men are enemies of God. All men are sinners. All sinners are enemies of God. But God reconciled to himself man, evil man, his enemies while being enemies. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. 
And I'm going to go back up a little bit because this is just a, a great section of Scripture. I'm going to go back to verse 8. Just in case someone here says, well, you know, that was a fire and brimstone. He doesn't believe in the love of God. I do believe in the love of God. But I challenge the theological viewpoint out there that God is love and love only, which you will hear from pulpits even on a Sunday morning. You do not understand God. You are not a person after God's heart. You do not know the scriptures. But here is the love of God in the midst of all that I've shared. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's Romans 5, 8. Romans 5, 9. Watch this. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we have been saved from the wrath of God through him. Hallelujah. We deserve the wrath upon sinners. But because Christ took our judgment and our wrath, we don't have to. And then he says this, for if while we were enemies, we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. And that's what reconciliation means, to bring two Parties are, that are at enmity together. Now, the truth of the matter is, it's not like God walked away. God was always there. It's man who sinned and walked away. And God was always trying to call him back to the reconciliation table or the reconciliation cross. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So as we think about this, we think about the wrath of God that comes upon sin. If we come to Christ, we have not one worry that God is going to throw us in hell because of that judgment upon the Lord Jesus Christ that was so perfect to where Jesus said, it is finished. Now, turn with me to verses 23 and 24. And then all of a sudden, David changes a little bit. But most times when that happens in scripture and you say to yourself, I don't get it, study a little further, maybe read a little further, and it will at some point connect. In Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, from going from the hatred of those who hate God, he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. Do you know what David is doing? David is pronouncing judgment on these sinners. And now David is looking at his own heart. Oh, my word. Maybe I pronounced my own judgment. But being a man of God, a man after God's own heart, he says, therefore, God, search me. In case there's anything in there that's wicked, search me. And what's amazing is, David already told us that God does that. The very first verse in Psalm 139 says what? It says, a psalm of David, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. So why would he have to say it? Because David was a man after God's own heart. What was in God's heart was in David's heart. And as God is searching, he wanted him to search. As if he was saying, Lord, you don't need my permission, but I'm allowing you to do it. I think I actually heard that this past week as I was talking with someone. 
talking about the lordship of Christ, of how we have to give him every area of our life. And it's not as if God needs permission, but our heart needs to be open. And here's David. I love this guy. A man after my own heart, God said. He is saying, I know you're searching me. I want you to search me. I just talked about sin. I remember sin in my own life. I know that I'm a sinner too. God, if even my righteous indignation here, which can be okay, but even if my righteous indignation here is wrong, is sinful, is out of self-centeredness, is out of because somebody spurned him or did something wrong to him and it comes out of emotion, he's saying, Lord, search me. If that's the case, Lord, remove this from me. That's an incredible thing. And so the two do go together. As much as when he starts talking about men of bloodshed who have no regard for life, he had just talked about regard for life, who God, who is the creator inside the womb. And here's men who have no regard for life, whether in the womb or out of the womb. How about abortion? That's exactly what that is. Now, let's look at this through Psalm 139, verse 23. So search me, O God. And, and, when, and O God is a way of, if, if you wanted to know someone's expression, that's how you would write it. Now, the, the number one most clearest way of communication is, is verbal. O God, as opposed to, oh, God. You hear it. But in writing, this is what you have to do. And this is what David does. He was a good writer. He was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He was very creative and poetical and a man of a heart. Oh, God, search me. He wasn't just saying, okay, God, uh, go ahead, search me. Yeah, uh, okay, know me. Oh, God, search me and know me. And then he says, try me and know my anxious thoughts. And here's some Hebrew parallelism. He'll say the same thing just in a little different way, but it gives you far more pictures now. This idea of try means to examine, prove, or test like one would test the purity of gold. Go ahead, Lord. The fiery trial. Test my heart, and my heart is pure to make it pure. He says, do, go ahead, Lord, do this. And see if there's any anxious thoughts. Now, what, what is meant by anxious thoughts? Well, the idea here is disquieting thoughts. Not so much to David, but I think to God. God, if you are displeased with what my heart looks like, if you are displeased with what is in my thought life, Lord, if you are displeased with my actions, oh God, Correct me so that these anxious thoughts, these disquieting thoughts are not there either upon your heart or my heart. He needs to be sure that he has not gone too far with righteous indignation. You know, some time ago, I did preach on a sermon on righteous indignation and unrighteous indignation. And most of us say, and I've ha I had numerous people say it to me <laughs> after the sermon, and I agree I'm heartfelt with you. Uh, maybe it's just best of us not to even have righteous indignation because many of us can't even do it right. Uh, but 
I think when it comes to God's reputation, God's glory, God's word, I think there, there ought to be some indignation. And that is why I don't like when there's false teaching from a pulpit. That's why we do expository teaching here. That's why we make no apologies for it. Because we want to sift out that which is false in every false way. We don't want anything coming against God, saying that God is a type of God that he's not. That's not worship, and we're going to be talking about worship. I said that. We're going to be talking about David's worship, a man after God's own heart. Well, you can't worship God in the imagination of your own mind and a God who you've conjured up, and it's not the true God of the Bible. That's not worship, and that is exactly what's being done today. Now, Barnes said this, he must be a very sincere man who prays that God will search his thoughts. For there are few who would be willing that their fellow men, even their best friends, should know all that they are thinking about. Wow, how true is that? But here's David, who already knows God knows, and says, here's my heart. Have at it. Try me. Test me. And then verse 24 He's requesting along the same line, but he's requesting to be changed. Not just search my heart, but then change me. He says, and see if there be any hurtful way in me. And here, the word for hurtful, I think, could possibly also refer to something that displeases God, breaks the heart of God. Um, Some have said this word is connected to idolatry. Does idolatry break the heart of God? Just ask anyone who's been coming to First and Second Kings. They will answer you hands down. Yes, yes, it does. That was the sin that the God who gave them the promised land and gave them protection and everything they needed, they turned away and went to a false God who doesn't even exist and prayed to him for all of those things. And God says, please turn to me, please follow. If you don't, I will have to judge you. My own people I will have to judge. And you will be taken out of the promised land and into a foreign nation. And they were. So the idea here is hurtful. Anything that's going to alienate our fellowship, not our relationship, but anything that's going to alienate our fellowship with God, sin is going to get in the way. Lord, take care of it. See if there's any hurtful way, and then remove it from me, Lord. I, I, want, I want to please you, Lord. And I love, I love what David says then. And I think it's not only because David is wise, but I think it's because David knows God. Well, how does God deal with the sin in our lives? As believers who are maturing and being sanctified, it's a progress going on now, even though that we are clothed in Christ's righteousness, sins are forgiven. We, before God, we are, are pure because of what Christ has done. But right now in this life, he's making us more holy. How does he do it? Just reach right in there and rip it out. It's not what he says. He says, Lord, if there's anything in my life, my thoughts, my heart, that displeases you, that would hurt your heart, Lord, would you lead me? Would you guide me in the way, the everlasting way 
In other words, he speaks to God as the shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. And a shepherd will lead and guide. Yes, sometimes the shepherd has to do disciplinary things to those rebellious sheep. But once they are in the fold, they are his possession. And he is the gentle shepherd. And I love this. Lord, And I think it's the reason why we can come to God like this. God, search my heart. No. And God, if you find something, can you help me grow day by day, step by step? step? Can Can you lead me through this, Lord? And that was exactly as he prayed. Now, quickly, I just want to say this. Let's go back to the Christian worldview again. Because in the Christian worldview, we, there is the teaching that's emphasized that we are to love our enemies. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said, you heard that it was said we are to deal with enemies in a certain way. But now I say to you, pray for your enemies. Love your enemies. It says, you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We are loving them because we want to share the gospel with them. Because in a sense, we were in the same boat as them under the wrath of God. But we are not now because we came to Christ. And we are to love them. And even though they're persecuting us, even though the Chinese government in World War II, after World War II said, all Christians are outlined, are outlawed, no churches, we're getting rid of all of the Bibles, Still, they were to love them in hope that they could share the gospel. And they also found a way to get those Bibles because it's the Bible that works in our hearts. And so it boils down to this. We are to hate sin. We are to abhor evil. We are not to get so accustomed to it that we, we, well, that's just the way the world is. Yeah, that is the way the world is. And God hates the way the world is. And we ought to as well. But we ought to love the sinner and minister to the sinner because we are sinners too. And someone cared enough to share the gospel with us when we were enemies of God. And as we think of certain passages in Scripture, it is so that we are emblematic of the Lord Jesus Christ and of his character And we are living a life that's pleasing him. And that in itself is the New Testament way of saying you are a person after God's own heart. So in conclusion, how do we become a person after God's own heart? And yet we're still not done. Well, in order to be a person after God's own heart, we must, number one, give our hearts completely to God, his word, and his will. Two, we have to have heartfelt repentance when we sin. Now, that means that we just need to confess it, but confess it and understand that it's sin and sin against God. We must have a heartfelt meditation on God's nature, attributes, and glory. Let's get serious about the Christian life. Let's get serious about our God. Let's meditate on his word and who he is. If you would like some verses on the attributes of God, I will provide those for you, and I will be heartfelt to do it. We also have to have a heartfelt hatred towards sin and 
heartfelt to reconcile the enemies of God through the gospel. And we also must have hearts that are open, open every area of our hearts and lives so that sin is removed, that God is working on us in sanctification and we are being conformed to the image of Christ. That is how we become people after God's heart. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for how powerful it is through the Holy Spirit. And Father, I would ask that you would search our hearts today and know us. I know that you have been doing that, Lord. You do that daily as we have devotions, as we walk on this earth. But Father, we do open our hearts to you. And we ask you, Lord, that you would lead us like a gentle shepherd to more Christ-likeness day by day. And Father, those who are still enemies of God, we pray for them. We know what will happen if they don't come to Christ. We pray that they will come to Christ, that they will come to him and say, Lord Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for all my sins. I embrace you as my Savior now, immediately having forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And we'll thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.